You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. All right. Well, good morning, Radiant Church. So good to see all of you here. If you are new, my name is Marco, and I am the lead pastor. Welcome to Radiant Church, and thank you for making us a part of your weekend. Hey, church, we are entering into the season of generosity, and I want to give you an opportunity to be generous with an offering that we're taking up on December 3rd called Give a Hope 2023. You can find more info at the website underneath there. But listen, here's what we want to do. We want to have or bring in an additional five to $10,000 to bless our local ministry partners, both locally and then abroad. And we also want to help fulfill some of our benevolent needs within our own church family as well. I would love for all of you to participate uh, in this offering, whether that's you're a college student or whether you're retired, just whatever you can give, we're going to give strategically in this offering. And we want to end the year with generosity because our God has been very, very generous with us. Now, Luke 6.28, or rather Luke 6.38, says this, Give and it shall be given. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured, uh, it will be measured to you. And so again, we want to be generous with our local partners here and with benevolent needs. And then, of course, uh, those who we have overseas. And we want to be generous because God has been generous to us. Hey, would you just do me a, a favor? Would you pray about what you would be giving on that Sunday, December 3rd? And let's watch how together we can make a significant impact for eternity. Well, listen, today, church, we are in week number four of our message series entitled Jesus and the End Times. Now, I promise you my goal is not to scare any of you into faith, okay? Seriously, that's not my goal. I don't want to scare you into faith. Uh, Rather, what I want you to do is I want you to live ready. I want you to live ready. I want you to long with expectation. And then we'll throw one more L word in there for good measure. I want you to love well. All right, love well. So the goal is not to just scare you because that's not going to really work for anyone. I want you to live ready because we don't know when Jesus will return. He said it would come at a time when we did not or would not expect it. I want you to long for his appearance, okay, that you would desire to see him. And then love well, love others well right now with the time that we have been given. Now today, I want to explore God's timetable in Daniel chapter 9. God's timetable in Daniel chapter 9. Now, Daniel chapter 9 is a really, really important chapter when it comes to biblical prophecy. It's very important. And when you understand Daniel chapter 9, listen, it's going to help you understand how God relates to his chosen people, to the, the, the nation, the Jewish people. It'll also help you understand some aspects of the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. That can be confusing, but I'm telling you, if you can wrap your mind around Daniel 9, you're well on your way. And so we're going to talk about God's timeline in Daniel chapter 9. Now, church, warning, 
warning. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of information, okay? There's a lot of information, okay? Some of you, if you love math, this is going to be your message right here. If you despise math, you're going to want to fall asleep. Don't fall asleep, okay? I want you to remain engaged. If you're a note taker, I love my note takers, but I want to encourage you, look up, because if you don't look up, you're going to miss some details. Go back and listen to uh, the audio podcast or watch the live stream a second time. That's how deep we're going to get into this. I'll try not to get too deep in the mud or in the weeds, but I just want to prepare you ahead of time that we will get into some details. But I will put a nice little bow on it at the end, okay? We'll give some practical heart application. But this message is not a, a me-centered message, a you-centered message. A lot of messages in the pulpits today are very me-centered. How can you get your victory and get your breakthrough? It's all about you, 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 you. And we need more God-centered messages in the pulpit, okay? I don't need 10 more ways to be an overcomer. I like that, and I appreciate that. But there are some messages that we need that we walk away with saying, you know what, God? You are amazing. Wow, you are incredible, and I worship you, and I love you. And this will be one of those messages for today. So without further ado, hey, let's take a few moments. Let's pray together, and then we'll get into the rest of our message. Jesus, we love you, and you are good. Your mercy endures forever. God, we just ask that you would, um, you would come and inhabit the praises of your people. Lord, we are praying that you would open our eyes to see uh, the beautiful things are in your word, to unlock some of our deaf ears, to harden some of our hearts, because hearts become hardened because life gets really hard sometimes, and we go through tragedies and difficulties and hardships. And for some of us, we need to have our hearts softened today. Father, would you come and restore families and marriages? Would you come heal broken hearts? Would you come again and bring peace to those of us who are worrying about every single last detail. Give us peace. We want to walk out of those doors changed and transformed. And we trust that you'll do it, God. So we submit our lives to you. We submit our hearts to you today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The ancient Greek philosopher known as Theophrastus said this, he said that time is the most valuable thing a man can spend. Benjamin Franklin, you may know the name, said this, time is money. Time is money. Finally, the modern-day leadership guru or productivity guru known as Stephen Covey, you may have read some of his books, said this, the key is in not spending time but in investing it. Now, I want you to think about these quotes because they all have in common the topic of time. And time is the one thing that every single one of us in this room, we're always conscious of, right? We're, every single day, we're asking these types of questions. Hey, what time is it? How much time do we have left? Maybe at the end of the day, some of you are asking the question, what have I done with my time today? Have I done anything, right, noteworthy? And so we're always thinking about time. And if you don't have a watch, you probably have a smartphone or a dumb phone, and you're always going back to it, not just to text message someone, but to check on the what? The time. Time is such a valuable resource. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes, he says, 
Make the most of every opportunity. Redeem the time because the days are evil. So even Paul, the Apostle Paul tells us, hey, you got to use your time wisely, right? Because the days are evil. Now think about this, church. If we are conscious of time, how much more is God conscious of time? If we are conscious of time, God is thinking about it that much more. Now, I think it was a couple weeks ago, I can't remember now, I told you that Israel, Israel matters today, modern-day Israel matters today because Israel acts as a prophetic signpost for the end times. The events that take place with Israel are noteworthy because some of them intertwine with biblical prophecy. And today, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel chapter 9 is really a focus in on the Jewish people and this prophetic timeline because, as I said before, God cares about time. God measures time in the same way that we use our, our clocks, our watches, and our phones to measure time. Well, well God measures time as well, and that's what we'll look at here in Daniel chapter 9. Now, let me just give you a brief summary. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Daniel, it's in the Old Testament, and this book is about really a, a young man, a young boy at this time. His name is Daniel. He is a Jewish exile in Babylon. Now, where's Babylon? It's in the Middle East. It's modern-day Iraq. The Jewish people have essentially been deported to Babylon. Now, why is that? Well, they've been deported to Babylon essentially because of their disobedience, right? Their rebellion against God. And God has brought judgment upon his people. Now, I told you last week, I think it was, is that in the Old Testament, we read about this vicious cycle that kind of goes back and forth. It starts off with rebellion from God's people. They rebel against God. Then God brings judgment or his discipline. Well, they finally repent, and they're doing well for a while. But guess what? They always go back to their old ways. How many of you know that's, that's a little bit like our lives, isn't it? Sometimes we're, we're, doing, we're doing well, then we rebel against God. He disciplines us. We repent, and we're doing good for a while. And then we go right back to that old habit. We go back to that old flame, right? This is how our lives are with God as well. This is the storyline of the nation of Israel, rinse and repeat in the Old Testament. Now, Daniel finds himself in a place of of influence here in this Babylonian culture. He serves under King Nebuchadnezzar. He also serves under King Darius. And the book of Daniel is pretty incredible because it serves as kind of like a manual for how to live a godly life in the middle of an ungodly culture. And that's Daniel, right? Daniel is a Jewish boy. He's trying to abide by Jewish law, but he finds himself where? In the middle of a pagan culture. So I love Daniel because of that. That's one of the reasons why Daniel is so relevant for all of us today. The other thing that makes Daniel so amazing are Daniel's prophetic dreams and visions. They have massive implications for us today. Now today, we're going to zero in on Daniel's prophecy. It's kind of Gabriel's, but Daniel's. Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks. Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks. And this is going to shape the way that we view the end times. There's a lot of numbers. Be prepared. 
but I will do my absolute best to walk you through this. And my prayer is that you'll walk away saying, dang, that was cool. Like, dang, that was, wow, I didn't know that. And for many of you, this will be new. So if you have a Bible or a smartphone, join me, Daniel chapter 9. We're going to look at the first three verses. Here's what it says. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, so Daniel's writing, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, let me take a few moments. Let me explain these first three verses, okay? I want to just point out a few things. Number one, I want to point out that Daniel is actually reading Scripture, and we know where he's reading from. Did anybody catch that? Jeremiah, right? He's reading from the prophet Jeremiah, and it tells us something very interesting in verse number one. Did you catch this? It says, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes. Now, this is a very significant thing in history, and we know this is true, and we actually have a date for this. This is really cool. The date is this. It's 538 B.C., and we know that in 539 B.C., we know that the Medes and the Persians overthrew the Babylonian culture, okay? So it went from uh, the Babylonians, and then all of a sudden to the Persians came in. And so we have a date. 538 B.C. is when Daniel is writing this specific text. So Daniel is in his private time, his, 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 his prayer closet. He's praying. He's looking at the prophet Jeremiah. So he's taking your Bibles and opening up to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Now, Daniel, most likely commentators say that Daniel is reading from Daniel 25 or Daniel chapter 29. How do I know? Well, it's kind of a guess, but we can figure some things out. Let me show you a couple verses. Daniel, or sorry, Jeremiah, rather, 29, 10, and 11. Now, notice what it says. It's going to correlate with what we just read in Daniel. Lots of puzzle pieces. You're smart people, and you can get this. This is what the Lord says. Go ahead and put those verses up. Perfect. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, this is God now, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. In other words, how long was the Babylonian captivity? It was for 70 years. If you don't know that, there it is, okay? I will come to fulfill my good promises to bring you back to this place. What place? The homeland. Remember, they're in Iraq, modern-day Iraq. They've been deported, right? They've been pushed out of their land. This was a, a product of God's judgment. It happens throughout all of the Old Testament. Verse 11, this is the verse we always take out of context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, we love to take those verses, leave that up there for a moment, and take them out of context, and we refer to our favorite football team, or like, hey, you're a champ, you're a winner, I know God knows the plans he has for you to prosper you. Well, actually, though, the context is in the middle of Babylonian captivity, when they were really down and out, God's like, hey, you know what? I, got, I still got a plan for you guys. I still have a plan for the nation of Israel, plans to prosper you, plans to bring you back to this land. Now, here's the cool thing. As Daniel is praying, he realizes that he's on the threshold 
of fulfilled prophecy. If the date was 538 B.C., that means it was 67, year 67 of the 70-year captivity. What's that mean? They're almost done. So Daniel has this realization. He's like, right? He's like, oh, my goodness. I'm literally walking out biblical prophecy. And he knows there's about three years left. What does that cause him to do? It causes him to hit his knees in prayer. He's like, well, Lord, like, forgive us and forgive our nation. We've rebelled and we've turned our back on you. We repent of our sin. God, I am, I'm culpable as well, Lord. And he goes into this beautiful prayer all the way from verse 4 to verse 19. Confession, repentance, right? It's motivated Daniel to hit his knees in prayer. Now, let me ask you a question. Why did God make the Jewish people go into captivity for 70 years? Now, we know kind of the cause, but why 70? Like, why not 50? Why not 20 years, right? Why not 30 years? Why was it like 70? It seems to be somewhat random. Well, guess what? It's not. I I discovered this this week as I was studying. It's not random. The reason why God forces them to go into captivity for 70 years is because They were disobedient to a law of God. I want to show you which law that is, or I'll explain it rather. There was a law in the Old Testament where the Israelites, they were supposed to tend to their land, plow their land for six years. And then guess what? On the seventh year, they were supposed to let it rest, rejuvenate. Well, here's the thing. Israel had disobeyed that law for 490 years. Okay, why is that significant? Well, here's why that's significant. Because the land was commanded, God commanded them to give the land rest, right? Every seventh year was a time of rest. So take that number, 490, and I want you to divide it by seven. Every seven years is supposed to be rest. That gives you the number 70, So God is saying, Israel, you owe me 70 years. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Now, I'm not making this up just in case. You're like, oh, that's pretty cool. How did Pastor Marco come up with that? I didn't come up with it. The Bible did, all right? Let me show you. 2 Chronicles 36, 20, 21. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. 21, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Yeah, wow is right. I want you to just get a glimpse how connected the scripture is to itself. Scripture is always referring. This is why we have to be careful when we over-spiritualize the text. We're giving it meaning that it never was meant to have. Rather, what you should do is try to understand where is the writer, what is his vantage point? Where else? Is this mentioned in somewhere in the, else in the Bible? How is this connected to the grand narrative, the meta-narrative of Scripture? And we see this here. This is so beautiful. Now, the best part about Daniel's prayer is that he gets interrupted before he's even done. Check this out, church. Verse 20 and 21, or rather 20 through 23. 
While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, you know, just doing what I do, and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill, probably Zion, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, angel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. Pay attention to that. Insight and understanding. As soon as you begin to pray, bro, a word went out, which I've come to tell you. doesn't say bro in there, sorry. For you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. I love this. Leave that verse up there if you would, Kinsey. Consider the word and understand the vision. What is Gabriel saying to Daniel? He's saying, dude, you got to get this, is what he's saying. you got to understand this. In other words, I want you to understand what I'm about to say to you. You know what that says to me? That says that, says that God wants us to understand these things. Amen? God wants us to have an understanding of the last times. Some of us, even myself included, I've been so confused in the past where I've just kind of thrown my hands up. And you know what? That was a bit of an arrogant attitude. I should not have had that attitude. I need to repent for that. Because listen, the scripture tells me that I can have understanding, that I can get this. This was Gabriel's intent to tell Daniel, not to say, hey, I'm going to show you about a mystery that you'll never get, dude. No, to say, listen, you're going to get this. Let me break it down for you. Understand the vision because it's that important. Gabriel begins, verse number 24. Okay, this is Gabriel speaking. This is where it gets a little confusing. Hold on with me. Put your thinking caps on. Seventy-sevens, or some translations say 70 weeks. Seventy-sevens in the NIV, I think it's 70 weeks in the ESV, are decreed for your people and your holy city to, here's what's going to happen, finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Okay. There's a lot there. Keep your Bibles open, your smartphones open, but pay attention. The first thing I want you to understand here is this. Notice Gabriel says this. For your people and your holy city. For your people and your holy city. This is not for Gentiles. This is not for all of us, unless you're, you know, you're Jewish maybe. Gabriel is saying, for your people and the holy city. Every time you see that referenced in the Old Testament, holy city is Jerusalem. Gabriel is saying something specific about the Jewish people, about what God is going to do with the Jewish nation, okay? This is really interesting. Now, if you've read Daniel before, you know that Daniel pre predicts four great governing empires, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7. Those four empires are this. Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, and Rome. Here's the thing. Daniel predicted all of these, and all of these have been fulfilled. Babylon was already fulfilled at that time. Now, remember, 539 B.C., Medo-Persians come in and conquer. That was about to be, right? That's, that's it's in process of being fulfilled at that moment. So this is incredible like the prophecy that we find in the Bible. That alone is amazing. So let me just say this, church. 
The glasses that God wears to view history and prophecy have Jewish lenses. Some of you are like, hey, why, where's the United States in the, in the end times? We don't know. Because the Bible is not USA-centered. It's not America-centered. Sometimes we get a bit arrogant and, you know, we think it's all about us. It's actually not. It's like, it's Israel-centered. It's Middle East-centered. I'm not sure what's going to happen to the U.S. I mean, we can see a little bit of what's going on in our culture, so we definitely have signs of that, right? But we see that Israel, the Jewish people, are really at the center. So when God talks about prophecy, he doesn't say President Bush or whoever, you know, He's talking about the Middle East here, and so we need to pay attention to what takes place. My second observation, church, is this. It speaks of a specific period of time, okay? Seventy sevens, or 70 weeks. Here's what you need to know before we go further. A week is equivalent to seven years. A week is equivalent to seven years. I'll explain what... Oh, come on. A week is equivalent to seven years. I'll explain what that means in a moment, okay? Let me say this. God has marked out a specific period of time, specifically 490 years, to accomplish his purposes. How did I get 490 years? You have to do some multiplication. 70 times 7 is 490. That's how I got that number. Interesting number or fact is, remember, that's the same amount of time that Israel was disobedient to the law. So take that how you will. The Christian worldview says that history, listen, is marching in a very specific way, and God is ordaining history exactly the way he wants it to march forward. This is beautiful. It shows us a picture, church, of the sovereignty of our God. That time has a de definite purpose. It's going somewhere. So the Bible says 77s or 490 years for God to accomplish his purposes. Okay, Pastor Marco, how do you know it's years? The unit is not given. Correct. The unit is not given. It's weeks or sevens. Whenever that's referred to in the Bible, it's either referring to days or years. In the context here, it can't be days. It doesn't make any sense. Scholarship is in agreement that this has to mean years, okay? Years. Why seven, you ask? Great question. What's up with the number seven? Well, in the Bible, it's the number of completion. We do know that, okay? Uh, but I want you to think about, think about it like this. The Jewish mind, or the, in Jewish thought, they think of time, or they think of all things, essentially, in units of seven. This is known as the heptad, the heptad. In the West, we think about things in tens or decades. I mean, other than the week, we know that the week has seven days. Most everything else, we're talking about decades or tens, right? We say, hey, um, she grew up in the 70s. Or hey, man, Pastor Marco loves 90s music, and I do, right? And he grew up in the 2000s, and we think of Tens. That's how we measure time. But in the Jewish mind, they think of everything in sevens. And so this is why seven is used. Generally speaking, church, I want you to get this. We are dealing with a 490-year time period for God to accomplish his purposes. 
Okay? Now, what are these things that God wants to accomplish? Well, we looked at them, but let's look at them again because there's a lot in the text. Verse number 24. Let's go back. Gabriel speaking 77s, 490 years. Okay, you can write that in your Bibles. Are decreed for your people and your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin. Don't try to write them down right now, by the way. To atone for wickedness. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy place. There are six things that God desires to accomplish in this 490-year period that, the, that he wants to do, that he's, he's moving towards, okay? Let me put them on the screen for you. Number one, to finish transgression. What does that mean? It means this. God is essentially saying to Israel, you know that time where you go from rebellion to repentance, back to rebellion, back to repentance, back to rebellion. Okay, you get my picture. God's like, we're going we're gonna to finish that out. We got to end transgression. No more than going back and forth. Number two, to put an end to sin. This really is a picture of the cross of Christ. This is actually a picture, though, more specifically about the kingdom of God coming to the earth, here the earth, okay? Because it's, the, the point of scripture is not us going to heaven. The point of scripture is heaven coming down to us. Ooh, snap, that was free. <laughs> it's not about going, it's about actually heaven coming down. So this is a picture, listen, of Jesus returning his kingdom here in its fullness, if you love Niagara Falls, if you love a beautiful beach on Cancun, it's going to be like a bazillion times better than that. Because I do too. I love those things too. God's not going to get rid of that. We're not going to just be floating around on clouds in a big old diaper. <laughs> that would be lame. We're going to be here on the earth, a renewed earth without sin. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's going to be awesome. All right, five people. Woohoo! Number three, to atone for wickedness. Now, I think this is more speaking of a picture of the cross of Christ. It's a prophetic indication that God would once and for all atone for iniquity, being crucified on the cross to pay for sin. By the way, that's the best news ever right there, right? Best news ever. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Another picture of what? The kingdom coming here in its fullness when a descendant of David returned to take David's throne to rule over the whole earth. That descendant of David is who? Jesus. That's right. If you're like, Moses, wrong. It's Jesus. The answer is always Jesus almost, okay? It's a picture again of what? Of the future. I mean, just be logical. To bring in everlasting righteousness. When you look around at the world today, do you see everlasting righteousness? I don't. I see everlasting anger and wrath and fury and violence and bloodshed. Number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. This is basically God would prove all the prophets and the vision as authentic and true. It's like God's going to say, I told you so. Everything I wrote about, I did. See? to seal up vision and prophecy. Number six, to anoint the most holy place. Okay, this refers to the temple mount in Jerusalem. Is there a temple right now in Jerusalem? Yes or no? 
No. That was destroyed. When? AD 70. How's that going to happen if there's no temple? Hmm. Don't you think that speaks of another temple being built? This is also a picture of Jesus himself empowering his people with the Holy Spirit, anointing us. We've been anointed. You've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. I know that gets over-spiritualized, and I get it. Like, he has the anointing. She has the anointing. I'm good with that because I'm charismatic. However, in a more academic sense, the anointing is actually the, 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 the Spirit of God indwelling us. Now, some people say, these six things, leave that up there, these six things, some people say, if you read scholarship, some people will say, well, you know, these three have been accomplished, these three have not been accomplished, and here's what I would say. I would say none of them have been accomplished except for perhaps number three. This is just my opinion. If you want to do all the research you can, it's just, it gets deep, so I'm warning you, okay? Now, I don't think anything, any of those have actually happened, okay? Okay? I mean, just look at it. To finish transgression, that keeps going. To put an end to sin, uh, I keep sinning, so I know that much. Uh, three, to atone for wickedness, Jesus did that at the cross. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness, uh, nope, don't see that. See the vision of prophecy, uh, nope, I think there's going to be more prophecy coming fulfilled in the last days. Six, to anoint the most holy place, there's no temple there. How's that going to happen without a temple being there? I just proved it, just being logical right there. I think only one of these things have taken place, Okay. Jesus came, number three, to take care of the greatest problem, our greatest need, which was sin. Okay, let's go back to the text. Who's going to bring in everlasting righteousness? Who will? Who's the person who will seal up vision and prophecy? Who will anoint the most holy place or the temple? Let's go to verse number 25 through 27. It says this. Gabriel's still writing or still speaking. Know and understand this. This is important. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, or like a decree, until the anointed one. Church, look it up on the screen. or look at the screens for a second. Who do you think the anointed one is? Jesus, right. Christ is not his last name. It means Messiah or anointed one. The anointed one. I think it makes it super clear here. That's just me. Okay, remember, don't over-spiritualize the text. This is, I mean, it's saying what it's saying. The ruler comes, there will be seven sevens, and 62 sevens. Oh, boy, here we go. Okay, 7 times 7 is 49. 62 times 7 is 434. Check my math just in case. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. That would be Jesus. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He, now it changes, changes topics just a bit here. He will confirm a covenant with many for one-seven. How many years is one-seven, church? Seven years, okay? One times seven is seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, Take seven, divide it by two, and you get three and a half, right? And at the temple, he will set up, notice the phrase, an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay, there's a lot there. So what do I want to tackle first? Yikes. Okay, let's look at this. Let's talk about the anointed one. 
the anointed one will come after, uh, was it seven sevens? 62 sevens. 62 plus seven is 69. It's saying that Jesus will come after the 69 weeks, okay? How many years is that? I'll just do the math for you. 483 years. 483 years, okay? Now, how long has God given for his purposes to take place? 490, very good. We're still short seven years, but then he says there's something about that last seven. We'll get to that in just a moment, okay? Let's look at the three distinct periods of time. Oh, she was really early on that one, okay. Number one, this is how Gabriel divides it up. The three sections, seven sevens. Stay with me. I know some of you want to go to sleep right now. Seven sevens, 49 years. What did he say? He said this, that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The next one, he says 62 sevens. 62 times seven is 434. That's up to the Messiah coming to the earth and then being cut off. What's that mean? Being killed, hanging on the cross. And then there's one more seven because that's 483. 483 plus seven gets us what? 490. And then that last seven, what does Gabriel say? He says that there's going to be a seven-year pact that he, which is the Antichrist, will confirm with Israel, and then he will break it when? Halfway through. Three and a half years. Seven divided by two is three and a half years. And you're like, right? Okay. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this so easy to get, right? Gosh, so elementary, you're thinking, right? It's sarcasm, sorry. Okay, leave that up there for a moment. Here's the question. So Gabriel says, from the time that the decree is given to what? To go back to Jerusalem and rebuild, that's when it starts, okay? That's the question. Okay, well, when does the first 49 years kick in, right? We want to know that because if we know it starts right here, then we know that 483 years will get us to right here. And then wherever it gets us, guess what that should tell us? That Jesus came into Jerusalem or was born, depending on the date you choose, and then he was what? Cut off. He was crucified. That time from the decree to all the way to that is 483 years, okay? And you're like, whoa, okay, this is wild, okay? Now, what decree is it? And I don't want to get too much in the weeds because I know it could be really confusing. In the Bible, there are at least four decrees. There is a decree from King Cyrus. There is one from Darius. There is one from, well, actually, there's two from Artaxerxes. Most of those don't include the city, although scholarship is, they debate whether that's just kind of included or not. But here's what I want to land on. I'll just land on this, okay? I want to land on that it's the second decree of Artaxerxes, I believe, to Ezra, which would have been the year 458 B.C., so if we take 458 B.C. as that starting point, okay, seven sevens, 49 years, and then another 62 sevens, we get 483 years. After 458 B.C., it would result in a date of A.D. 26. A.D. 26 is the time when many scholars believe Christ was baptized. He began his public ministry as the Messiah. Jesus' Jesus's anointing for ministry came at his baptism, thus... He became what? The anointed one in his baptism. At that time, an amazing fulfillment of prophecy took place. Now, another popular view or, is that it's 444 B.C. 
which is actually, um, excuse me, so I said 458 is Artaxerxes' first decree, 444 is Artaxerxes' second decree for the Jews to go back home. Nehemiah, Ezra, anybody remember those books? You got to go back and read them, okay? This is why you got to know the Bible. They go back to where? To the homeland. They're going to start rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple, okay? Woo! Let me breathe for a second. Let me just show you a big picture, okay? We'll try to make this available online somehow. I'll have to talk to Victoria how we do that, but go ahead and put that graphic up. This is going to explain everything, okay? Let's just take this in. Lots of pictures were being taken in first service, okay? So you can do the same thing if you want to, okay? Let's start with 458 B.C., okay? 458 B.C., Remember, Gabriel splits it up into two different sections of time. The first one is what? It's seven weeks, it's 49 years, okay? The second one is 62. 62 plus 7 is 69 weeks. Remember, Gabriel said 70 weeks total, okay? We're, we're at 69 weeks. So 49 plus 434 gets us that 483, which lands us at 26 A.D., and that was the time where scholars believe that Jesus begins his ministry because he was baptized. 483 years after 458 B.C. That's accurate. That happened. Even if you take 444 B.C., you're still going to end up with, I think, um, I don't know, 38 A.D. I, I don't remember the exact dates. Either way, the accuracy of the prophecy is astounding. That's what I want you to see here. This is mind-blowing stuff. This was predicted in the scripture, and it happened. Okay, there's a 2,000-year gap, okay? Because if we're on the 69th week, okay, or 483 years right now, why is there a gap? Why is there a pause button? Well, let me explain that to you. A lot of commentators say that God hit the pause button. He hit the pause button when Israel rejected their Messiah. What did he do? So God shifted the focus from Israel to who? Gentiles. Now God is allowing the fullness of Gentiles now to what? To come in to the promise. But there's going to come a time which, guess what? Israel's at war right now. That's why people are like, whoa, what's going on? This is nuts. This is like, what's, what is God setting up right now? This is why people are, this is why Christians are talking about this. If you're like, I'm not a Christian, but why is everyone talking about this? Or why do my Christian friends think this is a big deal? Because, right, it's like, what, what's, what's God setting up? There's going to be another, there's one last seven-year period, one last week, okay? Who's going to show up? The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, Daniel says the abomination of desolation three different times. Who else mentions him? Jesus. Now, Jesus, listen, is speaking about the abomination of, of desolation as a future thing that's yet to be fulfilled. Some scholars, you can read, some scholars, okay, will say that everything's already been fulfilled. I, just, I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. Some scholars say, hey, what happens with Israel right now? Like, there's a world-renowned scholar. His name's N.T. Wright. He doesn't believe that Israel has any bearings on the day whatsoever, and I totally disagree with him. I think he's wrong on it. I think that if you, if you read the text metaphorically in Matthew 24, I guess you can get that, but that just it, it creates a huge mess. I think he's wrong on that one. And honestly, there's seven more years to come. The Antichrist will come forward, create a peace treaty with Israel or something of that type. In the middle of that covenant, he'll break it. He'll go back on his promise three and a half years in. 
What happens in the final three and a half years? Jesus says the great tribulation. Remember that? Matthew 24. There will come a time on the earth like you've never seen before. It's going to be so bad on the earth. It's going to be just insane. And then finally what? The second coming happens before the millennium or the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Now, some of you are asking, Marco, where is the rapture? Great question. We'll get to that in two weeks, okay? Some say, oh, yeah, the rapture is going to happen before the last seven years. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. So I'm going to prove my point, though, because I'm not actually a pre-trip guy. I'm more of a mid or I'm more post-trip, to be honest with you. Okay. Ooh, a couple claps. Okay. I'll just say this real quick. Shoot, 1243 already. Shoot. Okay. I'll just say this really quick. If I don't prepare you for the end times, when you get there, you'll think to yourself, God said I wouldn't go through this, and then you'll want to you'll wanna renounce your faith. So I'd rather say, hey, we're going to pray for pre-trip, but we're going we're gonna to act and behave like post-trip. Okay. Come on, someone said. I like that. Okay. We're almost done. I might have to fast forward to the notes here. Okay. Let's read verse 27, Kinsey. Verse 27, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. How is he going to put an end to the offering there if there's no temple? Ah, there has to be a temple. Ah, Ezekiel. That's all I'll say. You can read about it in Ezekiel. Okay. And sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Jesus spoke about him until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness, okay? We know him as the Antichrist, okay? Now, here's what I want to do. I want to wrap up our time, okay? I want to wrap up our time, because some of you are like, holy smokes, what do I do with all these numbers? (laughs) Like, it doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Let me just give you three heart applications right off the bat. Number one, God is sovereign over all history, Amen? God is sovereign over all of history. I want you to see this. The Bible is remarkable. If you were a doubter before, I don't want you to be a doubter today. Number two, our days are in his hands, church. Our days are in his hands. We don't have to worry. You don't have to be full of anxiety. Our days are in his hands. The days of the upright are numbered by the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 18. Number three, all of human history is moving toward the return of Jesus Christ. Come on, do you see that today, church? Clap your hands if you see that this morning. Psalm 90, verse 12. Moses writes this psalm, by the way. Teach us to number our days that we may, be, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom. Leave that verse up there for a few moments. Another way that we can express Psalm 90, verse 12 is like this. God, would you help me to make the most of my days because I know they are few. Help me make the most of my days because I know they're few. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says that our life is like a vapor. Just here today, gone tomorrow. I want you to notice that our time is in his hands. Our days are in his hands. I want you to notice today that all of human history is pushing forward. And I mean, it's getting fast now, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it like wild now? It's getting wild now. And I don't know when he's going to return. It could be another 100 years. We don't know. But I want to live ready. I want to be be ready. I want to long with expectation. I don't want to play games anymore, right? God, search me, know me. And so here's the question I want to leave you with. If I were to ask you, hey, how do you prioritize your time? 
and you were to soberly think about that answer, would your answer include God in the top five? Would your answer even include God at all? So many of us, when it comes to prioritizing our time, we think of a few things. We think of our family. We think of our finances, how much money we're going to make, how much money do I have, what do I need to invest in, how do we get the next big deal, and we think of our future. But some of us don't even think about God. We just leave him out, right? And, and the thing is, I don't want you to do that. I want you to be a people who will prioritize God in your life today. Why? Because our, our days are numbered, church. Human history is rapidly moving toward his return. And I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready, church. I want you to be ready. So when you see him face to face, he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come on, let's pray together. Father, we love you. And Lord, help us to prioritize our days today. There's so many things that distract us. There are so many things that get in our way, Lord. Father, we pray that we might prioritize you first, that we might give with priority, that we might love with priority, that we might spend our time with the things that are on your heart, Lord. So Father, today, if we're far from you, we know we are not guaranteed tomorrow, Lord. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where we repent and come to you, Lord. Help us to prioritize our lives in line with who you are and what your word says. Lord, we know you're coming soon. We don't know when that is, but we know it's on its way. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. We're ready. We want to see you. God, we can't wait until these things are fulfilled in biblical prophecy, for we already know so many things have already been fulfilled by your will, God. And if we can trust, if we can see that you made good on your promise in the past, we know without a shadow of a doubt that you're going to make good on your promises today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's clap our hands for Jesus this morning.